With the coronavirus pandemic forcing local communities to enact stay-at-home orders to stop the spread of the virus, people everywhere found themselves spending much more time than ever expected with significant others, children, and family while self-quarantining at home. To be sure, many have enjoyed the extra time with loved ones, even as they have joked about how eager they are to send their kids back to school and get out of the house. Parents on television just want one thing. I'm going to out myself as pro-school, pro if it is open, I will send her. I'm just trying to get people to take my children. Take my kids back. we got to get our daughter out of the house, my gosh. She drives us well, crazy. Yes, please, please send my kids back. Please <laughs> send my kids back to school. You're having a day there, aren't you, in the camera household? But for others trapped in toxic relationships, being confined to close quarters with abusive partners is no laughing matter. Well, the fact is divorce rates do go up after periods of family time, like after the holidays. And divorce attorneys say they expect an onslaught when this is all over. In fact, one unexpected side effect of the coronavirus pandemic has been an increase in reports of domestic violence and divorce rates, first in China, but now in countries around the world. Our divorce rate and domestic violence on the rise because of the pandemic. In Japan, the hashtag Corona Rikon, or Corona Divorce, trended on social media as married individuals shared their frustrations at their spouse's bad behaviors. English language media quickly picked up on the trend, especially after one company in Tokyo started renting apartments specifically to individuals looking to flee from their significant others. While many corona divorce posts were tongue-in-cheek, it is undeniable that the coronavirus has had an irrevocable impact on intimate relationships in Japan and around the world. How has the media outside of Japan covered the impacts of COVID-19 on Japanese intimacies? Why does Japan feature so prominently in media coverage of changes in intimacy? And how have Japanese intimacies changed over recent years, even before the coronavirus pandemic? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on how COVID-19 has impacted Japanese intimacies, I talked with Dr. Allison Alexi, Assistant Professor of Modern Japanese Culture and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan. Dr. Alexi is the author most recently of Intimate Disconnections, Divorce and the Romance of Independence in Contemporary Japan, now available from the University of Chicago Press. I started by asking Dr. Alexi to share her impressions of media coverage of how COVID-19 has shaped intimate relationships in Japan. My first thought is that we need to differentiate between media coverage that might be kind of sensationalistic or unclear and media coverage of what's actually going on. We can make educated guesses about what might actually be going on in Japanese marriages or Japanese families right now. And in some ways, it's probably very similar to things that are going on in marriages and families in other places around the world where people are dealing with COVID-19. By that, I mean, we know that unfortunately, there have been higher rates of reported domestic violence, and we can make educated guesses about higher rates of domestic violence that's going unreported. 
We can also make a good guess that there are increasingly complicated custody disputes. So when parents are divorcing or already divorced or separated and children are moving between basically two different households, the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic is making it much more complicated. It's making it more complicated for parents to actually be able to exchange the children, to move the children, to transport the children. It's making it more complicated because one parent might be in a high risk or higher risk position. And it's making it more complicated because people might get sick. And then the whole family is going to have to figure out a response when maybe the parents don't necessarily agree. And of course, a third issue is lots of people are in real financial difficulties now, right, because of COVID-19, losing jobs or having reduced work. And so all of these are factors that are dramatically stressing families and couples everywhere, I think, but also in Japan. So the hashtag of COVID divorce is, as you say, I think kind of a way of venting or maybe making jokes about tensions that people are feeling in their families in an amplified way. But we still don't really know what's actually going on in families at the moment. So what I'm trying to say is the media coverage is bringing some kind of attention to the issue, but I don't think it's actually giving us a really accurate portrait of what families are necessarily dealing with. And that's a great point about how there are very serious consequences to this, even if this hashtag or some of these terms were used somewhat jokingly. You know, we should keep in mind that there are very serious consequences. And you also mentioned that this news gets kind of sensationalized. And we've seen this corona divorce news come up in the news recently in this kind of sensationalized way. But it's really just the latest in a long line of sensationalist news stories relating to intimate relationships in Japan. One that comes to mind was this New Yorker article from a couple of years ago about what they termed Japan's rent-a-family industry, or New York Times article from last year about Japanese women opting out of marriage. And then, of course, there's the story about the man who married his pillow, which you wrote about in the introduction of your book, Intimate Japan, co-edited with Emma Cook. Can you talk about why is it that the media in particular is so fascinated with intimacies in Japan, and why do we see so many of these kinds of sensationalist stories? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Partially, I've thought about it because I have Google alerts set up for all of these words that I study, right? So divorce and intimacy in Japan in English and Japanese. And so that means that I get a Google alert every time one of these articles gets published. So I can watch them kind of ricochet, the same story ricochet around the media world. And it's really clear that English language media sources like to have sensationalistic stories about Japan in general, and that many of them lately, and by lately I mean in the last 10 years, really do focus on Japanese intimacies. So my theory about what's going on is that if you read the stories, they present Japan in what feels like an open-minded and engaged way. So the stories will frame things, behaviors, practices, patterns that seem sort of obviously nuts or obviously problematic or obviously troubled. But the stories will frame them as, well, you, dear reader, might think that this looks weird or seems strange, but in Japan, this is perfectly normal. So I think that the articles tend to do a couple things at once. They are actually often sort of titillating. There is something about sex or the absence of sex or sexuality at the same time that they let the reader feel superior because the articles suggest that whatever Japanese practices are being represented here are ridiculous, right? So as a reader, you can say, well, you know, I don't know, I, I, I have a lot of trouble dating, but hey, at least I'm not married to a pillow, right? Things like that. 
And then the third thing that they do is they still actually manifest Orientalism and exoticism, but they're doing it in a way that makes it a little harder to identify. I teach these articles in my undergraduate classes here at the University of Michigan, and I've been really struck by how many very smart, very open-minded students completely fall for them. So the framing of the articles themselves, it's often a tone of sort of cultural relativism, right? Where, well, in Japan, they do things like marry a pillow or, you know, have this rent-a-family system. And so, you know, we have to be open-minded and accept that because that's the way it is, right? So they don't actually use the term cultural relativism, but that's what they're promoting. My students have a hard time identifying that as problematic. They tend to shrug and say, oh, well, that's what we should do. We should be open-minded and accept these different practices for what they are. It's just cultural difference, and cultural difference should be a good thing. And when we start to actually break it down and do a close reading of the article, you can see the ways in which Japanese people are still being represented as all of the stereotypes we already know. Goofy, thoughtless, somehow too emotional and not emotional enough, automatons, robotic, group-oriented, all of these things, right? So you can see it in the article when you know to look for it. But I think that focusing on intimate topics gives English language media an excuse to engage in all of the horrible racist stereotypes that they've been trafficking in for a long time, but with a slightly new twist. It's, it's hidden a little bit more. I write about this in the introduction to Intimate Japan, but it feels to me like it's a way of presenting a story that's about sex and sexuality without actually including any sex most of the time so that the reader can really feel superior. Right. So it's like, well, I'm having a bad day, but at least I'm not as weird. I don't have to rent my family. You're absolutely right. There's so many of these articles that it's basically just, oh, look at those crazy Japanese. And, and, and it is this kind of Orientalist notion that you were talking about in, in these sensationalist stories. But there also does seem to be at the same time, some changes happening in intimate relationships in Japan, right? Japanese couples are having less children. The average marriage age and average childbearing age are both increasing. And now there's polls that show younger Japanese are less and less interested in marriage or dating even. So in this sense, some people are saying, well, maybe Japan is going through things that other countries in the world might experience in you know, coming decades. Can you talk about or chart out how some of these intimacies have been reshaped in recent years? Or is this maybe we're just making too much out of these changes? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are real changes happening in Japan in the same way that there are real changes happening around the world. So in this way, my first point is Japan is not unique in this way. It might still be a canary in the coal mine in terms of aging population and changing demographics, which will be happening in other wealthy nations in future decades. It's important to understand that media representations of Japanese intimacy often present Japan as a singular nation with a singular set of behaviors, i.e. all Japanese people do X, Y, or Z. We know that that's not the case, right? And I teach my students, but if you ever see any media article or any kind of representation suggesting the Japanese all do whatever, all your red flags should go off. So the first thing to say is that, yes, there are major changes and debates happening about Japanese intimacy in Japanese marriages between people, within people even, right? People who are deciding, making decisions. But these are not universal. They are, in fact, debates and discussions. There is disagreement. People have a different sense of what relationships should be. So one of the things that I found in my research is that there is a lot of discussion and debate about how people should relate to each other, especially in intimate relationships and especially in family at the moment. And by that, I mean, basically, are there ways that somebody could be too close to a family member or to a spouse in a way that would actually cause harm to that person? Or alternatively, are there ways that people can be too distant, too disconnected, or too selfish? 
So as I'm sure you know, there's lots of discourse in Japan for the last 10 or 15 years about what's called muen shakai. So this is society without any bonds or society without any ties. And this is often represented as a really problematic shift. So Japan, in this thinking in the recent past, was a closely connected society with lots of tight bonds. And now, unfortunately, those bonds have been broken and therefore people are suffering. But one of the things that I found in my research is that lots of people are questioning that relatively simplistic understanding of sort of the downfall of Japanese society because these bonds have been broken. Some of the bonds weren't good. Right? Some of the bonds weren't healthy. One of the classic bonds in the Japanese post-war period were the way that salarymen, so white-collar businessmen, were asked to work and overwork for their companies you know, over the course of their career. These really awful working conditions that made it hard for those male workers, almost exclusively male workers, to have real connections with other people in their lives. So some of the bonds were problematic and therefore reconfiguring them or breaking them down could actually be helpful. Let me talk just briefly a little bit more about Japanese intimacy in particular. In the early 2000s, a legal change came into effect that made it possible for middle-aged and older women to appeal to get part of their husband's pension when they got divorced. So there was a lot of public discourse about what kind of damage this might actually do to families. So one of the biggest shifts in the way that divorce is being imagined in Japan in the last 20 years has been before that time, most of the time, divorces were requested by men, by the husbands, and often refused by wives if they didn't want it. And now, and by now I mean from about 2000 and later, it seems like the vast majority of divorces are actually initiated by women. So this is a really major gender shift. And if you start to talk to people about it, many people will say, oh, this is evidence that women are more powerful than they used to be, which possibly might be the case. But we also know that when women get divorced, they often lose a lot of money, right? Their standard of living decreases. It's actually much harder for them in a lot of ways. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in my book is complicate the simple narrative of the idea that divorce is always good for women and always bad for men. But the other thing I should say is, you know, I'm talking about divorce as if it's only for people in heterosexual couples. And as I'm sure you know, in Japan at the moment, uh, nationally, there is no same-sex marriage. However, there are some cities and neighborhoods in Tokyo that have created a same-sex certificate so that people who are in same-sex relationships can get some kind of government acknowledgement of the legitimacy of their relationship. This is not sufficient, right? It certainly doesn't help them protect them the way that they need to be protected in all sorts of situations. I'm thinking of things like when one spouse is hospitalized or suddenly passes away. So there does seem to be some real movement in Japan about what marriage should look like. I recently published a book that's called Intimate Disconnections, Divorce and the Romance of Independence in Contemporary Japan. It came out of the University of Chicago Press. And I'm really, really pleased to say that it is available free through open access because of a program called Tome, which is toward an open monograph ecosystem. So the book will be published in paperback. It's published in hardback if anybody actually wants to buy it. But you can also just download it from the University of Chicago Press website. So if you do a search for my name or a search for the book title, you'll find it there. You can download it as a PDF or a Kindle book or something like that. And I'm really excited about that because I work hard to make my research accessible to as many people as possible. So I welcome if any of your listeners want to read it or read part of it and send me questions or comments, I would be really grateful for that. I'm Tristan Gruno. 
Visiting Assistant Professor of Modern Japanese History at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.